0: Real quick, we're gonna introduce the next beer. Just real quick. Because while well, I take a sip of
1: whiskey. There you go. <laughs> oh, you're drinking whiskey. Oh, sorry.
0: What's your fancy? Bourbon!
1: <laughs> bourbon! Oh, we love bourbon. I love bourbon. We have no complaints about bourbon. <laughs> what do you what are you drinking? Oh, it's just Evan Williams. No, I'm, I'm just... not a fancy guy.
0: Okay. <laughs> This is going to... The one we're trying is Masthead's Single Origin Coffee Stout. <clears throat> it's, uh... This is one that Gumpy and I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, because we enjoy coffee stouts. And it's, uh... Oh, man. Go ahead. It's a lot like Michael Heiser. It's very balanced. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's just so much content to it. It's incredible it's a really good beer yeah it's smooth it's it a slight maltiness but you you definitely taste the full espresso in it yeah absolutely yeah really good espresso really punches you in the face there yeah 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 yeah. It yeah.
1: just the aroma alone know, it
0: has it's got a chocolate essence to it as mm-hmm. well yeah when you smell it yeah i we loved this one so much that this was the second one we picked up yeah <laughs> so once again nothing bad there at all yeah, it definitely tastes like espresso bean, and a chocolate covered espresso bean or something to me. Good yeah. comparison. <laughs> so, one thing I want to say, uh, Brian, is that in your audiobooks, um, you've, you've become one of my favorite voiceover guys. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's. I go through a lot of audiobooks every month. It's, uh, I, yeah. I, I subscribe to Audible, and I pick up a lot of the ones that are on sale. Um, I, and I go through various kinds of books, not just biblical, but also leadership books for work and everything else. Yeah. And uh, and, I, and so I pick out like a lot of my favorite voiceover guys. And uh, mm-hmm. there, there's such energy to your voice and such characterization in your voice that you really bring the stories
1: to life. That's I yeah, thank you so much for that because I I don't I don't know <laughs> you know I, I I really don't know I, I I think I think it helps that it's my story so I really know it well that helps right right um, and I've always been I mean look when I was uh, younger I did street drama uh, tons of street drama so I had and I'm a professional public speaker you know so I don't have any. You know, I'm not an actor's actor, right? But I know how to at least sort of engage and enter into it, right? But I've never really known is if this working or not. So I just go, well, I'll I just do what I would like, and yeah. hope that people like it. So thanks for hearing, it, for telling me that. That that's encouraging.
0: I I really enjoy it. It, it comes across well. As you're going through the story, I have no problem identifying what character is coming through and the emotions that that character is feeling. So.
1: That's cool. You know, one of the things that I kind of, and look, I, I didn't even, I don't even spend, I should spend more time studying the art of, you know, uh, of doing audiobooks and acting, because I do want to get better. Um, and I do a little bit of it. But I think a lot of mine was just intuitive, uh, just knowing basic things about, you know, like I say, acting in the streets and stuff. I've learned a lot of things. And, and I realized, you know what, I'm not I, I'm not a full actors actor where I could do each character differently, but I could do general things like all women can su- kind of sound differently than men, and then and then men would sound my normal voice. But then special characters, I can I can add a little flavor only for very special. If they have a very unique personality, hmm. then do that. And that but then I also realized but don't do it extreme cuz i just had an intuitive sense that if you overdo it it's going to get in the way. So when i do a woman i don't i don't try to sound like a woman cuz i can't, right? right? So i just i, <laughs> I just sort of like just yeah, just just raise the level just a little bit so you know it's not a man's voice, it doesn't sound like a woman's voice, but you know it's not a man. Right. And that's sort of been my my rule is rule of thumb is don't don't overdo it, just do a little bit subtlety and maybe it'll be just enough to hear enough difference. So that their imagination can fill in the rest and it won't be taken out of the story. But I've never – honestly, I've never known if it's worked well enough. So thank you for that. Yeah. For, I don't think Aaron would say for himself, but that's because Aaron has a gift for speaking too. Aaron reads very well. <laughs>
0: well, thank you. I wouldn't go that far, but thank you. You,
1: you sound a lot like <laughs> Sean Connery sometimes. <laughs> <Thanks>. Sean
0: Connery.
1: <laughs> Do you sound like Sean Connery? <laughs> right. 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 right.
0: right. Yeah, so yeah, I've really enjoyed the audiobooks. And as a comparison, like uh, for example, I love going through Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, I, I I also I also no, 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 I, I love I, I love science. And uh, and so I going through his books, for example, when he narrates, you can tell he has that same passion behind behind what he's talking about. And it comes yeah. and it comes through. It comes through. Yeah. His his passion for the subject matter comes through. But then I've also picked up one or two of his books that were narrated by somebody else and yeah. and it was just not as good. I mean, mm. to the point where it's like if if he didn't narrate it, I don't really want to buy it now. Just because it doesn't contain his his same passion for the subject matter.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating. And it's so funny because the only reason why I did it was i'm I'm a poor, starving artist, and I'm like, I can't afford to pay someone to do it. I gotta do it myself. <laughs> right. but uh but I think that's a it's a good point for me to just stick with it. you know, and interestingly, when I do my um the easiest ones to read are my theology books because for, for some reason, uh it just flows easier and I have fewer mistakes when I'm doing it because uh, I don't know, I mean that's that's just my intellectual side too. Um, but uh those are those I read more. More freely than I do the the fictions, but I don't know
0: <laughs> no no I agree, going back over to preterism because this is this is fascinating me because I come from like Gumby, I come from a very charismatic background um well I was when I was a kid, I was actually Roman Catholic, and then my parents moved me to the assemblies, which is like walking from America to China so <laughs> <laughs> so. So um, and, and so obviously I got engrossed in the whole, you know, pre-mill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. yeah um, and it's only, only been in recent years that I've stumbled across the traditional viewpoint of the church, um, because you know the older denominations actually recognize from their own writings that a lot of those prophecies were fulfilled in the first mm. in the first century. So yeah. it it's really interesting.
1: Um even Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you if you're really into more of the Church Fathers, that's true. Although I mean to be honest, um any any and any good scholar will admit this, an honest one will admit that the truth is is if you look at the history of the church, there's all kinds of views and all kinds of varieties and you know, yeah. there it's across the board and the truth is is that You've had just about every interpretation of the Book of Revelation you can think of, and so anyone who's claims like, "Oh no, this is the one that's the most ancient and everyone believed it," it's just not true because you can find, you know, you can find uh, post mill, pre mill, and amill type beliefs from different theolo- different scholars in the in the early church, and that's because that's one of the things I've been reading on lately is just how how diverse the views were, you know, and so no matter what view you have. You, we've got to have a humility in acknowledging that particularly with this the view of revelation and end times, there isn't there isn't one view that was the most dominant. There was truly a variety throughout all of history.
0: No, that at is at least that's that's that from how I see it. That's how, yeah. how I see it. That is true. There there were a few. Like uh Justin Martyr, who I liked. Uh Justin Martyr had a millennial view. Um He's one of the. He's really one of the only early church fathers that did. But he he also he did he did embrace a millennial view of of uh, the end times and coming circumstances. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but he was also no, one, of the, th- one of the interesting guys because he's one of the only ch- early church fathers that equated uh, the Roman gods with the nephilim.
1: Hmm. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. So that's that's good. Yeah, and I mean there there are several others. Um, Or let's put it this way: there are there are some of the ancient fathers. In fact, I I have an article on it, and um, uh, I think someone's putting out a book on it lately too. But um, that uh, they understood this notion, you know, and this was to me this was one of the most fascinating things. Um, And again, this has to do with the Christus Victor motif and the notion of uh uh christ in the power versus the powers you know that that there were many who in the ancient world who actually understood this notion that there were uh uh and and, i mean the septuagint and uh like the jubilees and stuff these other books they all understood this notion of the nations the gentile nations all had um Reigning spiritual authorities over them, and they weren't good authorities. They weren't good guys. You know, they were bad guys. And but but this notion that there are spiritual authorities over the powers, and and they're linked. So that this is where you get the phrase where even Jesus said, "On earth as it is in heaven." This is where they. Got, this is where he got that concept. It's it's not just that he's praying that things would happen on earth in the same way that they happened in heaven. What he's saying is that heaven and earth are linked. And whatever happens in the earth, there's mm-hmm. things going on in the heavenly. So you get Elijah's servant, right? Oh, everything's going to go bad. And got Elijah, Elisha prays, oh, God, open his eyes. And then he sees all the chariots in the heavens. Oh, I didn't see all that stuff, right? Because there are these heavenly powers that are going on. And that's something that even me and my my – look, I'll admit that I have a very rationalistic – You know like I said it's scientific enlightened mindset I tend to be more skeptical towards the supernatural I think to a detriment I think that it's been hard for me to appreciate the supernatural element of the Bible for today or whatever Um, or you know uh, not that I didn't believe in it but it just wouldn't be important to me but as I study this stuff I realized no you know the ancient mindset really did have an appreciation for this spiritual reality and and the way they saw it was this connection between heaven and earth. And that's why they – you know, and it touches on theological truths which are beautiful to me. Like for example, and this is not only in, in, Israel, in Israel but in all the ancient worlds. They believed that the earthly temple was a mirror connected, a mirror of the heavenly temple. And, and they, they often – every nation, whether it was Babylon, whether it was Sumer, whether it was Israel, they all believed that their nation was the navel of the earth. Greece, right? right? Israel believed that that the Jerusalem was literally the navel or center of the earth, and that directly above them, in the heavens, above the waters, this is all in the Bible, in the Book of Psalms, was God's earth uh, I'm sorry, God's heavenly temple. That the earthly temple was a reflection, but not just a reflection, but it was. Directly connected to it so that whatever happened in the earthly temple happened in the heavenly temple And this is why you get this powerful theological truths like for instance in the book of Hebrews right where he talks about the earthly Tabernacle or earthly temple versus the heavenly right but There it's not it's that they're intimately connected and that's a, a beautiful truth That you then begin to see this is why it makes sense when oh when when in the in the time of Daniel when Persia was battling Greece daniel talks about how the prince of persia is battling the prince of greece and that that hebrew word for prince is a spiritual power it's not an earthly one and so they really understood this this notion they saw the world this way that that i was not It's not natural to the way i think because i have this modern scientific mindset so in a very real sense my own you know bible study has forced me to have to have a more supernatural mindset than what i normally would have because it's it's not the normal way of that I think. If that makes any sense, so I'm not one of these guys who I'm not a charismatic. I come, I'm not, I'm, I'm very, I come from a non-charismatic background, so I've never really had that spiritual warfare understanding. But as I study the Bible, I've had to become more so aware of that. You know, well, if it, that makes any sense.
0: It, it's funny you say that because in in the charismatic side, um, I was actually a, a deacon in a charismatic church. Um, wow. So coming from the charismatic side, it's not like they don't think of the spiritual world as a spiritual world. Like like angels and demons are actually a subset of the idea. Most of it goes towards things like can you speak in tongues? <laughs> do you have Yeah? <laughs> do you have the power of healing? Do you it, it's more geared towards the gifts than anything else. Everything else takes a back seat.
1: Oh interesting interesting
0: yeah so so the the spiritual warfare side of it is actually much lower in a scale.
1: interesting. Now, I know that there is a sort of subset movement called the spiritual warfare, you know, where people really do get into all that and 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 I don't and to be honest i don't I'm not even in that camp because I believe that um, when Messiah came, <laughs> He did a lot of, he did a lot of uh, finalization of things, you know. And so um, while I certainly believe that there may be demon possession and stuff, I don't believe there are any more territorial uh, national spirits that we must battle against. Christ the Messiah did that for us. The Bible says in Ephesians, right, that he ascended to heaven and he led behind him a train of captives, man. You know, he, he actually whooped. You know, it says he leads. Uh, I can't remember where. Can't think of the verse off the top of my head. But it talks about how he leads a he leads them in triumph. He leads uh, Colossians. That's it. Colossians talks about how Christ triumphed over the powers. That's a triumph, man. Messiah yeah. triumphed mm-hmm. over them. There are no national authorities over because Christ, Messiah. Is the one who owns the earth now and he's the one who reigns from the heavenly throne there's no other authorities so Messiah actually won that territorial so I don't believe there are any more territorial authorities uh, myself you know so I'm not in that spiritual warfare camp but the principle of that I believe was true and going on in that first century so yeah that's 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 the story that I tell
0: see I I, that viewpoint is so much more optimistic I mm-hmm. I like that. It's 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 much more optimistic because that leaves the the future open to the kingdom slowly gaining, you know, control yeah. across the earth, maybe even the galaxies. I mean, that'd be fascinating, yeah.
1: wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I I you know, and that's why right. I I hope that my my stories will be and that kind of encouragement because look, no matter what viewpoint you come from, surely you believe that the kingdom of God that what what Jesus said about it right, you know, like and what Daniel said about it like, you know The kingdom of God is the kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms in the in the long run, right? And the kingdom of God is greater is he that is in you than he was in that he than he who is in the world, right? And so I admit that I I fail all the time. I you know, I I look at the world and I start to be, you know Depressed at how how much evil seems to win But I mean in my heart of hearts and when I read the Bible you know, the Bible clearly says that the kingdom of God is the superior force in, in the long run because Jesus is sitting on the throne, Ephesians. He sits on the throne reigning over the nations, you know. This is this is what the Bible says going on right now. And and we tend to discount the heavenly reality as if it's not as real as the earthly rea- reality, but the Bible doesn't talk that way. And I think the more that we set our minds on the, like you said, the positive power and authority of god's kingdom we see wow you know how defeated we often live our christian lives you know and i hope my stories will give be that sort of encouragement to say this is how it all fits this is how it all works out this is how the new covenant is the focus of god's you know it's it's everything it's like the the, the old testament is looking forward to messiah and the Messiah would bring the kingdom and the new covenant and it has arrived and it is here and we need to, to see the glories of that covenant because we so often are so focused on other things you know and that's kind of the, that's that's at least the heart of the stories I'm telling you know if it's not the theology it's definitely the heart and soul so I hope that that comes across
0: yeah no that's I agree I love it I love it it's it's like I said it's much more optimistic it gives us uh, a future. Um, it allows the kingdom to to slowly manifest itself across the world. Yeah, uh, makes it a little less further.
1: political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know my own my own personal journey, where I'm at now, is as I'm as I'm exp- studying to write these stories. Right, I'm I'm seeing even more. How you know? I always used to agree. Oh yeah, yeah. Jesus said that my my kingdom is not of this earth. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a spiritual king, spiritual kingdom, but it's always this sort of like. But really, my, you know, it's sort of like. In some ways, I've denigrated that spiritual kingdom as being of. It's not as real to me as the earthly reality, you know. Mm-hmm. And the more I study this issue, the more I see that the, I think the New Testament is saying no. The heavenly reality, reality, is really. The, the the. You know, this is the book of Hebrews, right? It's like you're consumed, you, you Jews who want to go back, you Christians who want to go back to Judaism, you know, you're obsessed with this physical priesthood, this physical temple. And he, what does Hebrews say? It's a shadow. You guys, you're clinging to a shadow that's going to be done away with when the temple's destroyed. Christ is the reality in the heavenlies. The Ark, of Co- the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven, is in the heavens, and Christ went into the true tabernacle in the heavens. He's saying that is the true reality. And by the way, this is not platonic. I do not believe this is platonic. This is not saying that you know the earth is, or physical reality is not real. F- no. But what I'm saying is we live in a by uh not bi-dimensional but truly a multi-dimensional reality and and we tend to we tend to or i'll I'll certainly say myself influenced by the scientific viewpoint you know i've tend to denigrate the heavenly spiritual reality to being something yeah that's true but it's not as it's not as gritty and and it's not my real life you know but now i'm seeing no the bible is saying no, that heavenly reality is the foundation of this earthly reality, and, and for, to say that Christ is reigning in the heavens, like Ephesians says, is not just this generic statement, but it's a statement of power and authority, and wow, you know, that's a different way of seeing things.
0: I get, I, I get caught in the, uh, the multiverse trap, too. <laughs> like like totally. I said, be, being a, a, a fan of, uh, of Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, and, and of DC Comics too, because, you know, <laughs> there is known for the multiverse. So, yeah. <laughs> so, it's it's almost falling into that, you know, well, heaven is just part of the multiverse, right? Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> totally, totally. And, and I do, honestly, I, I actually do think that, that that quantum physics, um, uh, approach, you know, appreciation of physics and, and that notion. Is what enables people to appreciate the heavenly realities a lot better, you know. And it's it's uh, it's so true. But you know, I think in the long run, you know, you get a Platonic view where it's like the ideal forms are more real than the physical world. Well, look, that's just going to lead you into gnostical gnostic, uh, you know, depression, you know. <laughs> but but you've got the other side, which is like, you know, the, the scientific idolatry which is like you know this physical world is the only thing that's really has Mm. substance that's of ultimate value to us and Mm. spiritual stuff is just too vague and to hold on to well that's that's just as ignorant and just as missing out on the quantum reality the fullness of of that reality so yeah i think we're we're definitely going down a a rabbit hole here but um (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's, so, so tell me, something. so now are you guys all like, are you guys all like Eastern Orthodox or something, or what's what's the deal? No, 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 no. That's actually
0: my personal path that I've been taking down the Eastern theology. Um, okay. And it it actually comes from studying. Um, okay. Just studying Christianity in general has led me down into Eastern theology because okay. that really encompasses most of the first five hundred years of of the uh, of the Christian world. Um, so
1: you're all from different perspectives, then? Or? Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh cool. Yeah, so cool. like Gumby and I actually both come from like say a, an assemblies background. Uh, okay. Mike, you're more of a traditional background, right? More like a. <clears throat> yeah, I was raised well, somewhat Catholic, and then uh, I'm a member of Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, a little bit of an evangelical background from just the you
1: know evangelizing pr- um, perspective, but. Okay. Um, Thankfully, I I didn't get into some of the stuff Gumby and Aaron talk about. I (laughs) I was never that
0: dogmatic to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And there's George over here. (laughs) Right, and then then I was uh, raised and baptized Catholic, and now I am your friendly agnostic here.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. So is there any – what strikes you as the weirdest stuff that you – uh, based on like this, the chronic, the, the apocalypse stuff, the tyrant, uh, you know, maybe you haven't all read it, that's fair. But in terms of the stuff you've heard or, or spoken of before we talked or while I'm talking, um, is there anything that strikes you as the most like, oh, that's, I haven't heard that before, or that sounds well, unusual for or anything?
0: For me, believe it or not, like I said, coming from that background and thankfully my, my recent studies, is realizing how much of the the prophecies were actually fulfilled across the first century going into 70 a.d um okay. that's just blown my mind uh step by step in fact your your book does a great job uh matthew 24 is a, is a great one
1: mm. yeah yeah that you know it's funny that's the easiest one you know I i remember Decades ago, when I was first exploring this change of, I was I was raised as a typical evangelical with Hal Lindsey. You know, I read *Late Great Planet Earth*. That was my era, the 70s, (laughs) right, the late 70s. *Late Great Planet Earth* was like, in fact, *Late Great Planet Earth* was the precursor to *Left Behind*. That single book sold 30 million copies. In a way, it was more successful as a single book. Because the Left Behind series sold 60 million, but that was like 12, 14 novels, right? I don't even know how many. But um, – so in a way, Le- Lake Planet Earth in the 70s sold way more as a proportion you know, in terms of that time period, and it was way more successful. I was raised on that, and so yeah. um, my journey was a difficult one because when I first heard the view that I now have, I literally called it heresy. Because no one had ever taught it to me, I just thought, well, if you believe the Bible, then this is what you believe, which is what Hal Lindsey said. It's like, no, no, no. There are whole schools of, of Orthodox within the Orthodox Christian community, Amil, Postmil, and pre mm-hmm. You know, there's multiple viewpoints of interpretation. I wasn't taught that. I was just taught, you know, well, if you believe the Bible, this is what you believe. You know, <laughs> which, which is now basically left behind, right? Right. So, and I think people are more educated about it now because I've I talked to a lot of people that. Like they, okay, fifteen years ago, they they I would talk to them, and they would go, "I have never heard that before, right? But now there are people who've who uh, I think that the Bible prophecy teachers have learned about preterism because it's a growing a lot more scholars are believing it. a lot more smart people are because it makes more sense. And uh, as you get further and further away from the, you know the nation of Israel, nineteen forty eight, that whole claim that a lot of that stuff was based on was when Israel became a nation in 1948 within a generation it's all going to happen well we're now two generations and people are starting to go you know maybe that whole interpretation is wrong and i got to consider something Brian. else <laughs> <laughs> that's that's taboo man <laughs> yeah, so well anyway, that was my journey and so I wrote about my journey in my book End Times Bible Prophecy and that's the that's sort of like I'm like for people who want to go into the theology, here's my story, here's how I changed my mind. And then in the in the um, first half of the book I talk about Bible prophecy in the Old Testament. How to see things through their eyes rather than, th- than through our eyes. And the Old Testament prophecies are very very poetic. And if you don't understand the poetry, you won't pick it up. But because a lot of the Old Testament prophecies did happen, you can figure out what they mean, right? Like, for instance, you know, in um, you know, the book of Isaiah or whatever, where he's talking about the first temple, when the first temple was destroyed, a lot of the prophecies, whether it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel or you know, um, Isaiah, they talk about that, that first temple being destroyed, and they describe it in very poetic terms like the sky rolling up like a scroll or god comes on the clouds right he, he i'm coming on the clouds to destroy egypt so they use this language and so the first book first part of end times bible prophecy that book i describe how the old testament uses this poetic language to describe prophecies that we know were fulfilled in the past in history and everyone agrees on this it's not a problem then I go into the second half of the book, I go into describing Matthew 20, chapter 24, which is the classic chapter that most people think, oh, this has to do with the second coming of Christ. It has to. But if you look at it, I actually think it's, it's not. It's, it's a prophecy about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And I walk through that prophecy and show you now that we know the poetic language that we used was used in the Old Testament, guess what? This is the same poetic language that Jesus is using it. So he he means the same things that they meant. So, for instance, when he says, the, you know, the, the moon and the moon will turn to blood and the stars will fall from the sky, you know, the literalists and the fundamentalists are like, well, the Bible says it, so it has to be literal. <laughs> well, guess what? You are literal, but the Jews were not. And right. if you look at the way the Jews used language, they used the language of stars falling from the sky a lot. And guess what they meant? When you go back in the Old Testament, it basically meant when the fall – when God judged a nation, he – remember how I said that there was a connection between the heavenly powers, heavenly authorities, which were also interchangeable with stars, and linked to the earthly powers. When an earthly nation fell, they described it as the stars falling. Why? Because the, the heavenly powers were also losing their power. One nation whipped out whipped another nation. They were, it was described as the stars falling from the sky, the moon uh, turning to blood, and the sun going dark. Because these were symbols and elements of that represented the authorities and powers of the nations. And so, when you realize that, then when Jesus says that, you realize, oh, Jesus is not saying that there's going to be literal astronomical, you know. Uh, eclipses and stuff like that he's actually referring to the the fall of of power of the powers not just heavenly but earthly powers and so these are the kind of things that i just try to describe in the books to explain the poetry of of prophecy and so you know honestly i think it breaks my heart to see how much this hyperliteralism as I call it, you know, or this obsession with literalism has just ruined so much of modern Christian interpretation. They read this stuff and they just go, "You're a liberal if you don't if you don't believe it's literal." And it's just like, <laughs> "Look, the yeah, whole actually yeah. I would argue that to take much of the Bible as literal, you're the liberal because the Bible doesn't use that." Language. That's true. It, you know what I'm saying so it's it's more liberal to interpret it as literal that would be that would be my argument but so I, I walked through Matthew 24 and I explained how this stuff was fulfilled in the first century and that's what Jesus intended and it's pretty it's pretty easy to prove that and I think that uh, so look I've I've, I've I've actually been amazed at how many emails I've got from people that said you know what I've never seen it this way and your your books your novels have really helped me to see it in a in a different way and, and that's very encouraging to me because yeah. I write these books. Sure, of course I hope I, – whoops, I dropped my water. Sure, I hope that people will you know see the Bible in a fresh new way. But I know that people are so invested in their viewpoints that I know that the likelihood of people – seeing things differently is not high. But I think that we live in an era now where people are really reevaluating this whole prophecy thing, and they're more open-minded. And so I'm getting a lot of emails of people saying, you know what, this has really helped me to see it in this fresh new way. And I was already kind of having problems with the typical left-behind view, but that's all I was taught. And now that I see this, I can see a fresh way of seeing it, and it's exciting. you know. I'm getting a lot of emails. I I, I didn't anticipate it, and, and I'm very encouraged by it. So I hope that... These books will continue to foster that discussion, again, by telling great stories that are entertaining, but also make people think and go, wow, this is really a different way of seeing things, you know?
0: Knock on wood. I do have two questions real quick from people listening. Sure. Um, One is from Angel McCann. Uh, She said, can I ask a question? I totally agree that Christ conquered, but why is there still evil other religious gods— religions and gods if there is no more territory and gods to battle?
1: Well, the the basic principle that I operate from is, and some, some theologians call this the now and the not yet, or another way of calling it is, um, this is where, uh, let's see if I can find that chapter, I, I don't know if I can find it. It's one of my favorite chapters in Hebrews. Um, but uh, the basic principle is this. God does everything spiritually, and then He does it historically. So, hmm. when Christ died on the cross, He died for our sins, right? And the new covenant was instituted, um, but and the old covenant was was over. But He didn't validate that historically until He destroyed the old covenant elements, which is the temple, right? And it's the same principle with. The gospel in the kingdom but he tells us this right he says the gospel is like leaven it's it you put it into bread and and it grows and fills the, the the dough he says it's like a mustard seed it's the smallest teeny little seed but then it grows to be the biggest tree in the garden and Daniel said that the kingdom of God would begin in the Roman Empire in the first century when That vision that he has of the stone cut without hands, which is obviously Jesus the Messiah, right, hits the statue. And then what does he say? It grows to be the biggest mountain that fills the earth. So this idea is it starts small. The kingdom starts in the first century, but it has to grow. And it doesn't tell us how long it takes. So who knows? Is it thousands of years? Is it 10,000? I don't know. All I know is the principle is that – and this is where in Hebrews – The most quoted Bible verse in the New Testament, the most quoted Old Testament Bible verse in the New Testament. Do you guys know what it is? Anybody? Go ahead, Aaron.
0: I I don't know. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) It's Psalm 110 where he says – Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Isn't that fascinating? That's the most quoted verse, which is very fascinating because what does that mean? That talks about Messiah, Jesus, sitting on the throne of David, you know, in God's – and it's also that Christ is is God as well. It's all this package of stuff. But anyway, in Hebrews – and you know what? I'm going to have to memorize this one and get this one down. I apologize. I don't have it. But he quotes it. Oh, I found it. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Hebrews 2, verse 8. There's another place where he, cr- he quotes the verse, and he's comparing Jesus to the angels. And he says, Look, these angels aren't as good as Jesus, right? Who, 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 to who the angels did God subject the world to come? And then he says, You have made him a little lower than enemies, that I'm sorry, you've made him a little lower than the angels and crown him with glory, and put everything in subjecting subjection under his feet. And then it says this Now in putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So this is the now and the not yet principle where God establishes Christ's absolute authority over all the earth. Everything is subjection to him. That's what it says spiritually. But we don't see it actually in history yet. Because that's the thing that slowly comes one step at a time incrementally. So when he says that, you sit at my hand until all your enemies are made a footstool, yet they're not all there yet. So even though Christ sits in the heavens, everything is under his feet, it is a growing process that takes time through long history. So that's why evil is not vanquished. And, you know, I mean – um, you know, traditional biblical theology or traditional biblical end times left behind view says, oh, yeah, evil is going to reign and the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And then Christ <laughs> comes and destroys it all. You know, it's in yeah. other words, they see it as a cataclysmic coming. But I believe that the Bible is more of an incremental authority where the kingdom of God grows slowly in the earth and there's still evil. And it's never perfect. And I do personally still believe there is a time where Christ will physically return, Corinthians 15. Um, and then and then he says, and then when Christ returns, the kingdom grows until – oh, and this, by the way, this is – I also – the way I understand that verse is he he will rule. Christ is ruling now. He rules until all his enemies are made a footstool. So in other words, what does it mean? What does it mean to be – made a footstool. It's to be put into submission. Well, what is that? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? No, it's conversion. In other words, when we submit and give ourselves, our lives to Christ or whatever, when we have faith, we are becoming, we are the enemies of God that have become his footstool. We are, conversion is basically the process of God conquering. This is why I, I, you know, the kingdom of God is not of this earth. He's not a military power. God conquers through spiritual conversion not through military power and he never has and never will and so so that's how we see that passage and that's why i see evil is still in the world and it's a long long slow historical process but it has been accomplished spiritually Mm. and and that's the now and the not yet if that makes sense
0: Absolutely. absolutely absolutely the second question which i think is kind of like that first one it may already be answered is uh Some of Paul's stuff seems to have the principles and powers still present. So I am still with the divine ongoing conquest view. That's from Hound Pursues, which I'm guessing is not a real
1: name. (laughs) That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. And here's the key to it all. The, The New Testament passages, all the New Testament was written before 70 AD. So you see... If when the coming of Christ on the clouds to judge Israel, here's here's my pic, here's my big picture. Um, the book of Revelation is not looking for the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. I, I believe Christ will come a second time, but that's not what Revelation is about. Revelation is about the judgment coming of Christ on Israel in 70 AD. It's not mm. a worldwide judgment. It's the localized judgment on Israel. On Jerusalem now all of the New Testament was written before 70 AD. so in other words they were in the transition period between covenants the old covenant had been, or the new covenant had been inaugurated in Christ but it hasn't been consummated until the temples destroyed so when when Paul is writing the Satan is the god of this world that's because he still was right yeah. Messiah Messiah had come but he had not accomplished his completed work of judging the nations and taking back the nations and, and spreading out the gospel. So he's the God of the world in the first century. But once he comes in judgment and f- obliterates the old covenant, that's no longer good. See, that's no longer legitimate. So that's why Paul was saying we still have the principalities and powers are still in control and still in power. But here's the key, you guys. And the book of Hebrews is, to me, one of the most powerful uh ways of of explaining this because the book of hebrews is talking about the temple right and he's talking about all this temple and the priesthood and christ is better but it's still standing and how do we know that because in hebrews 8 he says this he's talking about here's why the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant it it replaces it in in hebrews 8 verses 13 it says in speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete okay that makes sense i get that right yeah Okay, but but remember that the the temple still standing, he says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What does that mean? I thought he said the old old covenants obsolete. Hmm. So, yeah, it was made obsolete spiritually in Christ, but but it was not fully. It had not vanished away yet. He's saying it's becoming it's in process and ready to vanish away. So what that means is when the. When the old uh, temple was destroyed, that's when it was completely vanished. So they were in a transition period when the Bible was being written is my point. So yeah, the principalities and powers, the old covenant was still in effect until it was finally done away with with its destruction of the temple. And here's what he says a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, As long as the first section is still standing he was talking about the first section was the 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 earthly holy of holies in the temple so that first holy of holies is replaced by the spiritual holy of holies but it's not yet opened why because the first one is still standing and then he says which is symbolic of the present age so so you see, when that temple is destroyed, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 24, the end of the age, it's not the end of the world, it's the end of the old covenant age, the temple was the symbol, in, in Hebrews 9 and 8, it says that the temple was the symbol of the present old covenant age. It hadn't been destroyed yet, but when it is, that's when it was all finally accomplished. So that's why... The principalities and powers are still, you know, lore, you know they're still around and, and all that. But when Messiah finally uh, obliterates the old covenant, he takes back the territories. What does the old, what what does the old covenant or the Old Testament say about Messiah? That Messiah would draw all the nations into Mount Zion, you know. And 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 what does the New Hebrew says? You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the New Jerusalem, the heavenly. Jerusalem, the new Mount Zion, it's in Christ. And so when Christ destroys Jerusalem and the temple, he is obliterating the old covenant forever, and now the nations will now come into the kingdom of God because Israel is no longer in the way. (laughs) You know, in other words, this earthly Israel is no longer in the way because heavenly Israel, the body of Christ, those who have faith in Jesus, Jew and Gentile are now made one. It's this beautiful. This, this is the, the, the picture of the new covenant, and that's why the principalities and powers have finally lost their authority over the nations. Otherwise, if they were blinding the nations, right? In the Old Testament, everyone's going to hell. Gentiles are all blinded, right, except for Israel. But now what does the gospel say? Jesus draws all men from all nations, all men and women from all nations, right? Because they're no longer under that authority. If they were still under the authority of the principalities and powers, then Messiah couldn't draw them into the gospel, right? right. Or the, the gospel would have no power. So that's the picture that I'm painting here. If that makes sense.
0: That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. I love the historical aspect of it. Um, like I said, big drawn into the preterist view has been refreshing. Cool. Um, did, now, question on that: Do you take an early or later date on Revelation?
1: I believe in the early date of Revelation. This has been a, um, a scholarly debate forever, and it is not by any means. If you research, if you read, do good reading on it, you'll find that it it, it is totally ambiguous. Um, but futurists or left behinders, as as I call them. <laughs> You know, basically, futurists are most the dominant belief, and, and, and they are the ones who tend to – to. there's scholarship that argues that the book of Revelation was written in 95, around 95, and there is evidence for that. But the evidence is weak in my mind because um, you have to look into it deeper. Don't just take their word for it. Uh, but there is strong arguments that oppose that. And the truth of it is, if you look into the scholarship, there's both arguments on both sides, and I will even admit that there's – some good arguments on both sides so it's not settled but futurists or left behinders will want you to think it's settled so they'll tell you oh no no it's all scholars believe this and they're not being honest with you um but i'll tell you this if you want to look into the early date of revelation i'm convinced that it all like j.a.t robinson a famous liberal theologian i might add He argued for all of the Bible, all of the New Testament was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And internally, the evidence is the strongest. And um, there is some appeal to uh, basically what it gets down to is this. There's one source that everyone always looks back to that argues that the book of Revelation was written in the time of Domitian around the 90s. And that source is Irenaeus. Irenaeus makes one statement about John in the Revelation, they're arguing about whether or not this stuff is real and the interpretation is real, and Irenaeus says a statement that essentially is ambiguous. In the Greek, we're not sure whether he is saying, hey, John was seen in the time of Domitian, so they could have found out what, it, what he meant, or was he saying the Revelation was seen in the time of Domitian. And and so the late-date theorists conclude, oh, he must have been talking about the Revelation. But the problem is is the Greek is not – the Greek is ambiguous. And honest scholars will tell you it could be read either way. And um, so it's really not a very val- – it's not a very strong argument. But the problem is, is if you look in the internal evidences of the New Testament and the book of Revelation in particular – um, I believe that it's, it's, it argues strongly for an early date, which means during the time of Nero, probably around 65 AD. Now, you can read an entire book that will answer this question called "When Before Jerusalem Fell" by Kenneth Gentry. It is the quintessential book that gives you the late date, or I'm sorry, the early date arguments, the best, and destroys all the late dates. And guess what? It's free. You can go to my website, gadawa.com. Click on Chronicles of the Apocalypse, click on Scholarly Research, and I have a bunch of free books related to the book of Revelation that you can get online, uh, and Before Jerusalem Fell is one of them, and it, it will detail for you uh, why the early date is, is the better argument. Now, here's something very interesting. If the book of Revelation, I argue the book of Revelation is prophesying that the temple is going to fall. God's going to destroy it in the armies of, of Rome. And this is Jesus's judgment on Jerusalem and Israel for rejecting Messiah. And and it is ultimately the, the divorce of earthly Israel and the marriage to the heavenly Israel, which is the body of Christ, which is the new covenant, right? right. So that's what I argue it's for. So um, it would make sense that if it was written – Oh, so so what I'm saying is, all the prophecies that he's talking about were fu- were basically fulfilled in the first century. Now, not every single one of them, but basically all of them. All of them were. And but here's the problem: if the book was written after the temple was had fallen, then the prophecies would have to be for something after the temple had fallen, not about the temple, right? Right. About, so, and, and, and so, so that fal- that, if you could prove that Revelation was written in 95 AD, it would falsify my preterist view. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I argue that is an evidence for preterism being a superior view because you can falsify it. You can disprove my theory if you if you do this, but here's the problem with the futurist views: you can't disprove their theory. It's like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> See what I'm saying? They could just keep saying, yeah. and that's what they do. Look yeah. at his look at the history of the interpretation of revelation from futurism. Every generation details this in revelation mean, has to do with this in the newspaper. This with revelation has to do with this in the newspaper. Mm. They've been doing this for 150 yeah. years, and they are always always wrong exactly. so you can never disprove their theory because they just change it oh yeah. oh it didn't mean that it now means this so I argue that the fact that you could falsify my theory makes mm. my theory superior well, but you can't falsify so a theory that you can't falsify well you can't prove it you can't disprove it you can't prove it so it's it's worthless
0: Well it, isn't <clears> it, that's what I argue it, isn't that just that's just like the recent uh, Nibiru stuff right where Nibiru is going to happen on September 23rd yeah. Oops. No, I'm sorry, we got that wrong. It's it's gonna be October twenty third,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They keep doing it. and the blood moon how are those, how are those blood moons working out for you. Yeah. Look you guys, I, I think they I think it's it's coming to a head. More and more people are now really, really seeing this stuff is so wrong over and over again. Maybe you know, the argument has always hmm. been look, there are kooks and some people are a little bit too aggressive in their predictions. We should be a little bit more humble, but just because some people say these goofy things doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means they're wrong in the interpretation. Yeah. But I'm, what I argue is, yeah, technically you can say that. But look, if this is what keeps happening over and over for 150 years, maybe it's time to consider that the problem is not with individual interpretations. The problem is with the entire system. Yeah. Right. Just consider that. That's all I'm offering. Just consider that and listen to a different viewpoint and and I honestly I, I see a, a rising increase of interest in this preterist viewpoint because it's making sense with more people. Yeah. And look, you've got you've got theologians like twenty years ago R.C. Sproul became a partial preterist in this pathway. That's a big thing. He's reformed and lot you know some people don't like that, but he look he's a very very. Um, you know, he's a popular writer, and he's got a lot of respect. You know, he's a very orthodox Christian theologian. And then about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, apologetics, right? He became a partial preterist, which is – that's my viewpoint, by the way, just so you know. It's it's the partial – there's different versions of it. Let's not get into it right now. But just he became my viewpoint. And so really key guys are, are starting to become – scholars are starting to become this viewpoint, which is – Allowing people to be a little bit more open-minded. Open so, well, maybe I can consider it, and it's not heresy after all. Yeah. And that's yeah. a good thing.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. Well, I, I, I like Hank Cranegraff. He's, he's, he's recently Orthodox,
1: so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. Does the, does the third temple being rebuilt today fall into that category for you? Well, here's the thing. There, um, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that, that – this, this, the temple, which we all know is the old covenant, right? And we all believe, any Christian on um, face of the earth, please, Jesus brought the new covenant, right? Right. <laughs> okay, we can all agree on that. So, if the new covenant here is here, and the old covenant is no longer in effect. Isn't it interesting that God would, in history, destroy the temple in such a way that it would never be rebuilt again? Because if if they were to try to rebuild the temple, World War III would start, and they're, so they're not going to do it. Now, I know people make the argument that, yeah, but there will be a way that it will happen and all this. But I find it fascinating that historically speaking, God destroyed the old covenant symbol in such a way that they haven't been able to rebuild it, which is really an affirmation to me that the new covenant is here and the old covenant is obliterated. God doesn't want it to ever come come back in. However, historically speaking they could still it's still possible they could build a temple i would argue then that it's just a carcass of a dead religion I mean. but nevertheless that's a fascinating historical ver, val, validation of my viewpoint that says god destroys the old covenant symbol because the new covenant to prove that the new covenant is here and he does it in such a way that they're never able to rebuild it again now the christian futurists argue ah yes but the prophecy says the building the temple will be rebuilt again but the problem is is there is no prophecy anywhere that says there will be a third temple rebuilt, mm. ever. Right. Well, not, only, now, not only that, but they, there's, there's no priesthood. Yeah, I mean and there would be no legitimate priesthood. If you're no records, a Christian, you yeah. cannot possibly believe that a earthly priesthood in a temple with sacrifices, you cannot believe that without – apostatizing from the new covenant but but these christians are saying that no 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 god god is gonna have that temple rebuilt and the antichrist is gonna make a covenant with israel right and uh, and then christ is gonna come back and destroy the antichrist and he's gonna reign in the temple and they're gonna do the sacrifices it's honestly you guys i think it's it's like it's insanity it's completely Mm anti-gospel anti-new covenant believe these things but that's what a lot of these christians believe and so they pin all these hopes that the temple's going to be rebuilt temple's going to be rebuilt but the problem is is that there is no prophecy anywhere that says there will be a third temple rebuilt now they assume that the temple in revelation 11 they assume well if the temple's been destroyed and Revelation's talking about, uh, you know, Revelation 11 talks about a temple, therefore it must be rebuilt. But the problem is, is that temple in Revelation 11 is the the temple of the first century, and it's talking about that temple will be destroyed and it will be trampled underfoot for 42 months by the Roman army, and guess what happened? Roman army in history trampled underfoot Israel and the temple for 42 months. So that stuff already happened in history. But the point is is that um, there's no actual prophecy about it. They have to assume it, and uh. that's their problem. They believe that the, the, the eschatological temple of Ezekiel is this rebuilt physical temple. But what they miss is the eschatological temple of Ezekiel is actually a symbol of the church, the body of Christ. Mm. And, and that's, what, that's of course, what I, I would argue. And it's interesting because Zechariah, you, you know, um, let's see, I don't know if I have the verse here with me, but in Zechariah, Zechariah prophesies that Messiah, it literally says this. i got to find it. Let's see if I can find it. It says that Messiah will build the temple. So they're assuming, oh, yeah, wait a minute now. I, how can the Messiah build the temple? If you say that the Antichrist builds the temple, right, and then he has a, uh, and then he has this uh, covenant with Israel, and then he, three and a half years he breaks the covenant, right, and Messiah. Well, but but Zechariah says,
0: I, I would agree that, that that we are the third temple
1: mm.
0: as the body of Christ.
1: Yeah, obviously that's where I'm getting at. But the point is, so it says that it says that Messiah will build the temple, right, and then what does it say in the New Testament? Uh, and and all through the Old Testament is the chief cornerstone that you rejected has become the cornerstone of the new temple, right? Yes. And of course, the fulfillment is Jesus is the cornerstone that the Jews rejected. And and think about it, if the cornerstone is, and this is something I just sort of like came about in the last couple of days, like if the cornerstone, what is the cornerstone? The cornerstone is the measuring. Uh, uh, It's the perfect block that they use to measure the corners from to build the whole rest of the structure. In other words, it's supposed to be like a perfect measuring tool upon which the entire building is is based. So if the cornerstone is that which the building is based upon, and the cornerstone is Jesus, which is obviously a spiritual, not a physical cornerstone, well, then the temple is going to be what? It's going to be spiritual. And then in Ephesians 1, it says... Jesus is the cornerstone, the prophets and the apostles are the foundation, and you are the building. You are the spiritual temple. So all throughout the New Testament, it talks about how the body of Christ is the spiritual temple of God. So yes, the the whole point of it is the eschatological temple of Ezekiel is fulfilled in the body of Christ. And this is why... People are missing – this is why they missed the Messiah, because they interpreted the Messiah as being an earthly leader with military powers, building a temple, ruling over everyone on earth. They completely missed it. No, he's a spiritual king who will reign in the heavenlies. His temple will be spiritual. He will rebuild his spiritual temple. They missed it all, and Christians are missing it because they are taking that which is spiritual, and they're unspiritualizing it making it earthly. I agree. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of, of, the, of the gospel, you know, is that it is the fulfillment of all those promises yeah. made, to the, made it, to the patriarchs.
0: Even when Jesus says that uh, those coming are true worshipers, worship in spirit.
1: Yes. Yes. So, Amen. Uh,
0: yeah. I agree. I agree. Unfortunately, that was a bit bastardized by the charismatic movement, but it still stands true. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, no, absolutely.
0: Yeah, uh, dialing dialing back just a little bit over to your Irenaeus statement, I do want to point out that even though Irenaeus had uh, had a date for that, not everything Irenaeus said was on point because he also stated that uh, Jesus Jesus ministered for twenty years, which would have made him about fifty.
1: Bingo! Yep. So. There's a lot. There's a there's a lot of arguments, and that is an excellent <laughs> one that. That, you know, you, you have to be careful about ascribing mm. too much authority to some of these guys. And absolutely, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. Um, and really, that is something that's so simple and obvious that if he can't get the dating right on that, on Jesus being 50 years old, ministering for 20 years, what? You're right. going to trust what he says about, <laughs> you know, now look, that doesn't mean nothing is trustworthy, right? I right. admit that. But, but it does point out that you cannot give him canonical authority when it comes to dating because he, he doesn't get his dates right a lot. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Good Excellent point.
0: Not only that, but in the right in the first two chapters, there's only seven churches mentioned. So we know that it had to be before 70 A.D., right? Because before 70 A.D., there was only seven churches, and after 70 A.D., there was immediately over 14. Actually, over oh, I think it was after 66 A.D.,
1: well, you mean you mean in Asia Minor because he's only writing to Asia Minor. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I d- I didn't know that actually. That's that's interesting. Good yeah. point.
0: Yeah, so I mean Who so the fact that he's just he's writing to seven churches tells you that it's a before 70 AD date. So,
1: that's a good point. I did not know that.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating. Fascinating stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's several other books that you can get. You know, I recommend for people who want to learn more about those kind of scholarly arguments. Um, it's really helpful to uh, go to um, the the website that I recommend is. Um, either Kenneth Gentry.com because he has a couple books about the dating, not just as before Jerusalem fell, but he has a couple others. And then AmericanVision.org. They are, they, Gary, that's Gary DeMars. And, and all Gary DeMars stuff I highly recommend. And, and he has some books about, um, about the dating of, of revelation and also about the views of the ancient church. Many people, there are many futurists who, who argue, the Preterist view. Nobody believed it in the ancient church. Ha ha ha. Well, guess what? There's two books I know of that are um, the the the, uh, the early church and the end of the world and um, Revelation in the first century by Francis. Both books are by Francis Gummerlock. You can get those books at AmericanVision.org, and they talk a lot about some of the ancient church fathers, the Shepherd of Hermas, and and and, and others who who do have a more preteristic viewpoint to make, to, to disprove those arguments. You know, in other words, out there, and not, I've now, I've now interacted with some people now where they, they're just, you know, they believe in this future scenario and then they just, there are people who try to debunk preterism. So they have their one article where they think they debunk it and everyone just points back, Oh, this article disproves preterism. Right. And, um, and they don't look into it for themselves. And, and these are some of the things that, that they say that they don't realize, well, it's just not true, you guys. People are saying nobody in the early church believed preterism. It's like that's completely false. You know, do the research, you know, and that's what I recommend to people, instead of just believing those who are debunking, thinking that they're being faithful to the viewpoint and they're not. I have found in my interaction with people, when they find out about preterism and 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 hear this view, if they've learned anything about it. Or even if they haven't, none of them have tended to understand the view correctly. They've all had a mischaracterization of it because they just haven't been told what it really is saying. And they have caricatures of it in their mindset. I'm not kidding. Most of them, I don't know, I haven't talked to anybody who really had a accurate understanding of it it's always some kind of caricature so i think it's really important for us to explore other ideas and by the way i i do this from my viewpoint i read viewpoints that i don't agree with about the end times because i want to learn from them you know and maybe i'm wrong you know so i think we need to be we need to be open and and willing to learn from those who are in traditions that are not our own and that's why i i love reading from all the different traditions i don't have any problem with that and and nobody should
0: i agree yep I agree. We're with you. So from right here, we want to thank Brian Gadowa for his awesome work on all of his books, both in the fiction, the nonfiction, the scholarship, uh, his work inside the movie industry. It's all been phenomenal. Uh, His great narrations of his own books, which I really enjoy. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm encouraged uh from what i heard tonight a lot brian so thank you man
1: thanks for having me guys i really appreciate
0: it oh we really appreciate it we've we've really enjoyed having you on it's been uh it's been fantastic getting all your insights cool so i want to thank you uh phenomenally from all of us yeah Yeah. well i'll
1: expect when i have my next release i'll expect you to have me on
0: we expect to have you on as well indeed yes yeah in fact, we would cool. love to have a future episode where we talk more exclusively about your Nephilim series because that was – there's so much content in there. It, oh, it's, yeah. it's mind-blowing.
1: Let's do um, it, man. Let's do it in the next couple of weeks or whatever. Whenever you guys are available. I I'll, I'll love it. Yeah, Let's I, would,
0: do it. I would love to. I mean, the, the cross-examination, even just from biblical, you know, the Jewish side to Akkadian to Ugaritic to Sumerian, I, I loved all the cross-referencing. It was incredible. Very cool. So, yeah, love to have you on a future podcast. And a future book idea, the the Nephilim Basketball Association. (laughs) 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 So so thank you again. Um, All right, guys. And uh, and we'll talk to you here shortly. Sounds good. (laughs) Okay. And we will see you again on Bible Over Brews. Catch us on bibleofbrews.com, and you can catch us on Twitter. You can catch us on Instagram, Facebook, um, pretty much wherever the social media. (laughs) Have a great night. All right, take it easy. Good night.